Thanks for tuning in. This has been Tech Cafe, a weekly podcast which takes place with a live audience on Clubhouse. You're listening to episode 59, and our guest today is the co-founder of Better Tomorrow Ventures, Sheila Manat. This is our first conversation with a venture capitalist, and given all that is happening in the industry right now with crypto, the FTX case specifically, we couldn't have asked for a better wealth of resource than Sheila to join us. Reminder that the conversation took place on Clubhouse and we were joined by a live audience. So what you're listening to is that recorded session. If you'd like to join us for the live session, again, we welcome you. Join us on Clubhouse every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. So let's start with a quick round of introduction. My name is Ambika Sharma. I'm the creator and host of Fintech Cafe. Started the show as a hobby. I have worked within the financial services for the past decade in countries like U.S., Switzerland, Germany, and Chile. And I'm joined weekly by my lovely co-host, Manisha Chakrapani, who also works within the financial services, specifically within product strategy. Together, we bring this show weekly to you. So thank you again for joining us, and we hope that you find this show meaningful. Sheil, what an honor. I know about two weeks ago, we kind of <laughs> ambushed you at a happy hour. <laughs> it was great. I <laughs> didn't give you a choice, but appreciate this greatly. I'm so excited to have you on. I know you have the breadth of experience. Obviously, the crowd is here to listen to you. I would love to hear in your own words how you actually came down to VC because you've done everything from product management to business development, and now you're actually making some of these happen. So we'd love to hear your story in your words. Yeah, sure. I, I got to it accidentally. I think there's no sort of standard path into venture capital. For me, I worked as a management consultant you know, work selling into financial services. I was at BCG. After the financial crisis, we did a project that kind of changed my perspective on a few things. And I ended up, a buddy of mine left to start a company and I joined him. And so a couple of us from BCG left and, and, and started this company called Fee Fighters. We ran it for a couple of years and then we got acquired in 2012. It was a payments company that helped small businesses basically get get lower prices on, on payment processing. And then ultimately we kind of pivoted into a product that was a payment gateway plus processor, very similar to Stripe. We were nowhere near as successful as Stripe, but we, we had an exit that, that was great in 2012. And while we were raising money for that company, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I was a management consultant at BCG, living in Chicago. I had very little connectivity to Silicon Valley, but came out to San Francisco to meet with, with venture capitalists. Like anyone I could possibly get into, like, you know, was emailing everyone, getting no responses. Was, I really had no idea what I was doing. But I got to know a few VCs that I really liked. And, and during that time, I thought, hey, I'd love to be on the other side of the table. I'd love to be a VC. So after our exit, you know, I, I had enough capital that I could start doing some angel investing. And I found I really loved it. I, I had moved to San Francisco at that point from Chicago. And I started angel investing for a few reasons. One, like, yeah, I didn't know that many people in San Francisco. And it was like, I could do things to meet people. I thought maybe I'd get inspired to join one of these companies. And then sort of like, thirdly, it was like a monetary benefit, you know, Angel investing is not a good way to get rich quickly. It takes a very long time. So I think that was probably like third on my list. And then I also just like get a sense for whether this is something I want to do full time. 
I ended up starting another company with another friend of mine, and that company got acquired in 2015. And so at that point, I thought, okay, maybe I can just do this full time. So I initially was investing with my own capital, and I decided, like, I'm not smart enough to invest in everything. Maybe I can build a brand in something I already know. And my first company was a payments company. My second company was an auction company, but had a large fintech component, which was escrow services and payments and international payments. And so I thought, like, maybe this is an opportunity to, like, I can carve out a niche here. At least I can understand this ecosystem, meet all the players, and this will be my thing. So, so I started investing in fintech exclusively beginning of 2016, really, really just kind of fell in love with it and, and thought and like still think to this day constantly how broken financial services are and how much there's an opportunity for technology to change people's lives. And so that, that was my foray originally, you know, started with my own capital. Then I, in 2017, I raised a small fund, 15 million dollars friends capital and then you know made it official in 2019 with my partner jake we raised a 75 million dollar fund and then about a little less than a year ago we raised a new fund that's a total of 225 million so have been have been growing yeah congratulations on that recent round just curious to hear your take, Sheila, on how you managed to convince folks. I think 2016 sounds like almost a very, very early start of fintech where not many folks may have been as aware other than those who are really close to it. So just curious about how you managed to share the story and grow your funds. Yeah, I think, you know, fintech was still, as you said, like very, very nascent. I think Earlier, in the earlier days, when I was doing my company, FinTech was really just payments companies. And that's when you had Square and Stripe. And then it kind of went into a lot of lending companies. You had Prosper, Lending Club, and others. And then, and then kind of, I'd say over the past five or six years, it really greatly expanded. And you've had neobanks, investment companies, all these, all these other things came sort of more recently. I, I think I just knew that this was an area that I wanted to be in. And the original capital was pretty difficult to raise. You know, the fund was $15 million, but it took me like a year to raise. And it was mostly people who just, who knew me. So it wasn't like I was able to raise like a, a, a legitimate, you know, external fund. And then kind of with that track record, I think being early in the category, kind of everyone who was, I think, early in the category, not that I was so early, but everyone who was early probably did pretty well. And so like that first fund was performing really well because when I started investing in 16, there weren't, there wasn't as much competition on the venture side. So the valuations were still relatively low. And then as FinTech became a darling over the next five years, and then, you know, we can talk about how, what's happening today, but until 2021, FinTech was a real darling. So all of those companies like ended up just having, some of them had a quite meteoric rise. 
and so that benefited me greatly. And then, you know, the next couple of funds were, were relatively easy to raise. Awesome. And Sheil, in terms of the, I mean, I think you recently helped raise a, it was a Latin American. I saw it in the news today. How do you go about, you know, what is your framework for some of these early stage companies that you choose to fund? Yeah. So I think like the way I think about it is number one, when you're investing at the earliest stages, you're investing in people. So primarily I'm looking for an amazing team and it's really more than anything, a great founder who can articulate their vision. And of course it has to be a vision I believe in, but like if it's a vision I believe in and a founder that can articulate it clearly, then I know they'll be able to, to attract, you know, the three things you need, which is like, generally speaking, you need further capital. So like, if you're able to articulate your vision, you'll be able to, maybe you'll be able to raise future capital. You, of course, need to attract customers and you need to be able to recruit a team. So like that is the number one thing, the team. I also am looking for like, is this a tech business? So the framework is T's. So team number one, let's say tech number two, a lot of companies that you see in like quote unquote fintech are much more fin than tech. They're really specialty lenders that maybe have some digital distribution. So we're really looking for something that is a te technology advantage that allows you to scale. So that's, that's tech. Then there's like trends and trends are actually pretty important. If you build a company selling into a rising market, you will do very well, generally speaking. So, you know, all the companies during COVID e-commerce was on fire, BNPL, payments companies did exceptionally well because the trend was in their favor. So like we look for companies for which we think the next five or 10 years, the trends are going to be in their favor. And sort of another T alongside that is TAM. Is the market large enough? So if you succeed wildly at what you envision doing, is this a $10 billion plus company? That's something we think about. And then sort of another T would be traction. And, you know, we're seed investors, so it doesn't have to, it doesn't mean that you need to have millions of dollars of revenue, but have you done the work of finding integration partners? Have you gone through some regulatory exercise? All that sort of stuff could be part of traction. And then finally terms, you know, like, are we, is this the right valuation for where I think you're at in the business? She, we have a pretty large audience today. So I was thinking maybe we should level set a little bit about the funding scene. So in other words, what is a general partner? What's a limited partner? How do you go around fundraising even $15 million? You're saying it's a small fund to somebody like me. That sounds like a lot of money. So can, we, can you just tell us what is the process of starting a fund and what is a GP? What is an LP? What are the rules of engagement? Yeah, absolutely. So a general partner or managing partner is a person who is running the fund. So day to day, they're actively running the fund, making investments and managing the fund. A limited partner is limited in that all they do is provide capital. And so, you know, in a $15 million fund there, we had, I think we had 14, maybe something in that range, investors who comprise that $15 million fund. And 
So each of them invests, and generally speaking, it's a two in 20, where you as the GP get 2% of the fund to manage as a management fee every year. So in a $15 million fund, that's $300,000. And so that means over the 10-year life of the fund, you take out $3 million. So of a $15 million fund, you only have $12 million to deploy. Now, there are some reasons why you may end up with more, but let's just use that as, as, as a baseline. You have $12 million to deploy, and then there's carry. And in the carry, you get generally 20% is common. In some cases, it can go up. In, in, my, in our case, now we have a, a, diff, a slightly different structure. But, but generally speaking, it's 20% carry. And so how that works is like, let's say, you know, of the $15 million fund, again, you invest 12. You don't get any carry until your companies have sold for more than 15. So even though you only invested 12, until you hit 15, you don't see any carry. And then any amount beyond 15, you get 20% of that. And then the LPs, the limited partners, get 80% of that. So let's say the fund ends up 4Xing. So that, that's kind of like, that's a pretty good outcome. 3X is kind of your typical fund. In the case of this fund, it was you know, early in fintech and it, it was a very good time, well, well-timed fund. So it, it's more, but, but let's just say a 4X fund would be nice. So that means you turned the $12 million that you originally had into, when I say 4X, I mean 4X the whole fund, so of the 15. So that means you turned 12 million bucks into 60 million bucks. So that means overall you returned 5X, but to the fund, that's 4x, if that makes sense, because the 3 million is in management fees. So if you have 60 million bucks, that means you created $45 million of value. And then the general partnership would get 20% of that or 9 million bucks. Well, somebody commented, this is a masterclass. I agree. Okay, so just going off of this, you, your first fund was 15 million in 2017. And then subsequently, two years later, you raised 75 million. If one were to follow in your footsteps, at what point does one decide, okay, it's time for me to fundraise another? Is it after you have deployed the 12 million or at a certain point that it's necessary to start creating another fund? Yeah, generally speaking, these things are kind of on three-year cycles. The last couple of years, just like there was so much activity that it became more of a two-year cycle. But I think we are definitely moving back into a three-year cycle phase. But but what happens is like, so let's say, let's use the example of a $75 million fund. So if we're investing all 75, that we actually are investing about half of it in first checks, and then half of the capital is reserved for follow-ons. So that means, you know, over the course of the the first basically two or three years, you do all of the first checks you're going to do, which is half the capital. And, and then after that, and half is, is kind of the standard that, that many, or I would say maybe most funds follow, half the capital in the first check and then half the capital in follow-on. So, so after, you know, you've set up a certain guideline. So in, in our case, we do about 30 investments per fund. 
And we feel like that's a manageable number that we can be very actively engaged in the companies. It's about 10 per year. And so kind of once we've gone through, you know, let's say, let's say it's 10 per year over three years. Once you've gone through like two, two and a half years, it's time to start raising the next fund. And that's, that's how we did it. And, and in, in our case, you know, in the $15 million fund, it was small. I was the GP. When I, at, at that point, I actually was interviewing at other funds and thinking like, okay, maybe I'll join a more established name. And over time, I spent a bunch of time with, with a couple of, you know, wonderful funds. And just after spending time in their partner meeting, I decided that it wasn't for me. Like a large fund, it can become very bureaucratic and you end up doing a bunch of things that like I didn't want to do. And plus, like, I feel like I want to build my own brand. I feel still like an entrepreneur doing what we're doing today. And so my partner, Jake, who's, who's a good friend, he had started a company called NerdWallet that IPO'd last year. And so, and he'd been doing a bunch of angel investing. So I thought he might be the perfect partner. And so, you know, a couple of years into the lifespan of that first $15 million fund, I started spending a bunch of time with Jake and eventually we decided, let's just do this thing together. And it's been a great partnership since. Okay. One more question then, Manisha, I'm handing it back to you. You said that you feel like an entrepreneur and I agree. I think you are. Raising fund is no easy chore, but more than entrepreneur, you're enabling entrepreneurs. The question is, you've been doing this for a while. Have you thought about becoming an operator, going and starting your own <laughs> company? Like in a truest sense, you mentioned that there's a lot of friction in the fintech sector, and I agree, but just curious to see whether that has crossed your mind. Yeah, I've definitely thought about it. And there've been times where I become obsessed with some idea and, you know, spend a little bit of time researching that idea and then think about whether it makes sense for, for me, probably not for me, but for maybe for someone else on my team to, to go execute against it. And we have done that once with an EIR of ours, went and started a company that actually has become incredibly successful. But generally speaking, I feel like at this point, I don't have enough time to like think about new ideas that I get obsessed about enough that I want to spend my time working on. But every once in a while, I think about it, actually. In fact, just yesterday, I was biking around San Francisco and thinking of, of a particular business that I like. I was like, what if I ran it? And then I was like, well, it's, at this point, you know, I've kind of committed to my LPs for that for the next probably, you know, you've committed for 10 years, but really need to be managing it actively probably for the next five years. So it's probably probably not realistic for me. So that samosa venture idea has to wait. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Stay oh. tuned. Five years from now, I'll be out there with samosas everywhere. We met you at Money 2020 and, you know, there were some themes that were coming through in terms of infrastructure, not as much on the crypto side. Would love to hear your sort of take on the current trends and also where you think some of that, it sounded like, you you know, there's still opportunity out there, fintech, maybe 
in its growth cycle still, but would love to kind of understand where your take is from a trend standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of a lot of what we believe at BTV, and we, this was like our first slide of the first pitch deck we ever made was everything is fintech. And so we think a lot of businesses, it's clearly not every business, but a lot of businesses will incorporate fintech components. If you are a vertical SaaS player, let's say you sell software to salons. So you're what that salon owner uses all day to manage the business. They are using it for marketing, scheduling, all that kind of stuff. But then also they probably are accepting payments in it. So that's one angle. And you know, maybe they're partnered with Stripe or Phoenix on that. They also may add in a payroll component. We have a company called Salsa that embeds payroll behind the scenes in vertical software companies. So that's another angle. They also could add in banking services. So you could give, you could pay out people on a debit card. And down the line, you actually could become a bank-like product because you actually know a lot more about those customers and, and that, that salon than the bank ever will. You know their up-to-date receipts. You know who all of their customers are. You know like how many appointments they've booked next month. So you're actually in a better position to give them a loan than a bank would be. But of course, like you don't have the infrastructure to give them a loan as you, the software company. But if there was some other company that made it really easy, you might do that. And so we believe that there's a big opportunity here. And you know, a couple of our companies, I mentioned Salsa does payroll. Another company of ours, Unit, is a banking as a service solution that has been quite successful in this vertical. Awesome. Thank you. And, uh, and then in terms of, uh, you alluded to it earlier, in terms of where we are in that cycle, do you think the area that you specifically mentioned is, has a proof against some of the other headwinds that the fintech industry is going through right, right now with the rising rate environment? Yeah. And not so helpful forces. Yeah, it's, look, it's tough. I think it's been a it's there's probably more pain to come but it has been tough the last six months have been you know i'd say like almost every board meeting i've had has been difficult it's been missing numbers it's been not achieving what we want and i think it's partially like just the previous couple of years where there was just so much capital flowing in where every consumer neobank and other many, of course, other different types of products had raised so much capital, that they were spending so much money to acquire customers. And those customers, you know, each incremental customer you get means all of the infrastructure players that I described and I invest in do well as well. And now all of a sudden interest rates rise. You can't just spend infinite amount of money on customer acquisition. You need like a sub one year, maybe even sub eight month payback period. All of a sudden, the profitability of those companies is important, which it never was before somehow the previous two years. And then they're acquiring fewer customers. So there's less money to our infrastructure providers as well. And I think, you know, I think it's been tough. I think we're not, a lot of these companies aren't going to see the growth that we had in 
2021, you know, I had companies grew five, five plus X from a, from a good place to begin with. And I think, you know, some of them are going to shrink and it, it's going to be tough. I still think ultimately the macro thing that we brought up earlier on, which is financial services is still too difficult and there's opportunity that technology can solve problems. I just want to pick off from there. You said that there's still a lot of friction. From a policy perspective, what are your views? How can some of that friction be mitigated? And what I have top of mind as you were speaking is open banking. President Biden signed an executive order, you know, last summer, summer, I think it was summer 2021, urging CFPB to make efforts in this direction of open banking, which is the law of the land in Europe, but it's not in the United States. So yeah, just curious to get your thoughts on how can policy also mitigate some of those friction points that are top of mind for you? Yeah, I think that's a really good one. I think, you know, I, I think there are lots of opportunities for policy to help make lives easier. One of them is certainly open banking. And, and if you're able to, you know, log into someone's bank account through a third party service, like what Plaid enables, but, but easier, that would solve a lot of problems. I also think regulation could create a more real-time payment network like we have in some other countries. In India and Brazil, you have consumer payment businesses that were government mandated, UPI and PICS, that are really amazing for the consumer. It's like, you know, anyone can pay anyone for free. Now, that does come at a cost, which is the banks are basically eating the cost, and it's a cost of doing business in those countries. But it enabled so much different kind of innovation in those countries. And like right now, there's a tax you pay for every payment you do, but the government could regulate that away and, and make it fast, easy, and free. What are your views on Fed now, which is Federal Reserve's real-time payments network, which they're looking for more adoption? So what do you think of Fed now? Yeah, I, I think it's a good idea. I think it has, you know, as you would expect, it has taken much longer to roll out than, than we expected. I think now we're talking about sometime mid to end of next year. and. Like I said, like instant payments are important. So I think hopefully we'll get there. But I don't I don't have like a very strong or informed viewpoint on it. And just going on similar shield topics, I think in general, what's happening today, it, you know, with the FTX and Binance situation. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of folks on the call or otherwise are probably anxious to see where that lands. Do you have sort of an assessment on where it came to and also what it means for the crypto space going forward? Yeah. So I say this as like a, like, we don't invest much in crypto. We have, you know, obviously looked at a ton of stuff. We've been skeptical and honestly, quite honestly, I felt like all of 2021, I was like, what the hell am I missing? Like, what, what if I, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, there's all these 
all this jargon and stuff that like never made sense to me. I always felt like there was counterparty risk. And now I feel some vindication. And, you know, it's clear in this FTX situation, there was a lot of just blind trust placed in SBF. And there are all sorts of messed up things happening with between him personally, Alameda Research and FTX. And he's a very smart person, but I there is gonna be there there are gonna be a lot of legal challenges here. You know, investing customer money in your own token. There there are all sorts of challenges. And I think crypto overall is probably pretty crypto crippled. Like this is a this is a major thing. And it's all about trust. Like everything in financial services is about trust. And I feel like this year trust has really been broken. There have been a sort of a bunch of seminal events that have broken that trust. And I don't know what's like how to get that back. And and so like this year you had Terra Luna collapse. You had three arrows capital collapse. You had you have this FTX situation. You know, it goes way back to 2014, we had the Mt. Gox hack. And a lot of people, a lot of the early speculators in, in Bitcoin lost a ton of money in that Mt. Gox hack in 2014. And I think we're in a, in a moment that is very difficult for crypto because you've lost a lot of trust. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Great. Yeah, we'll uh, definitely wait and watch. The other also side to everything that you're looking at, Sheil, are the incumbents. So wanted to take your quick pulse check on what you think, how, how you think they're positioned, especially when, you know, some of the more emerging companies are having a little bit of a rough go at it. Yeah, I think the, you know, I, I think now a lot of the banks are looking at the the world of fintechs and they like didn't quite understand like why are these companies raising at such crazy valuations like over the last couple of years and then you know they because they looked at the raw numbers and the numbers were pretty small and then over time they were like actually maybe there is something with this fintech thing and, and a lot of them started building some good products and i would say most of the most successful fintech companies are really building they're not like they're building in a niche that the banks were not good at so like you know the most successful bank neo bank in america chime they really went after a, an audience that was deeply underserved by the traditional banks and i don't think the traditional banks have caught up but also like the business model is very different right your traditional bank makes money primarily on deposits through NIM net interest margin, which is the difference between the amount that you take in on deposits that you pay out on deposits and that you loan out money to. And that's how they make money. So if you are a, a consumer that doesn't have very much money, you know, you earn money and then you spend it, you spend your paycheck every, every month, you're not that profitable a customer of that bank. But for Chime, you know, their primary revenue stream is interchange, which is 
when you use their debit card and swipe it somewhere, they get paid a certain amount, a percentage. And that's the bulk of their revenue. So it's actually like a different business model. And, you know, some of you probably know there's a regulatory reason why that's possible, that the large banks actually could not have the business model of Chime, but it is like a different business model. In terms of how the banks have handled it, I think, you know, I actually think the large banks in America, Wells, City, Bank of America, have, and JP Morgan, I think, like, it took them a while, but they, they got it. And I think, like, I think they've handled themselves in a pretty decent, responsible way. You know, I, I think Goldman really made a bunch of efforts to move into fintech with Marcus. I think they have largely, you know, they've been successful in some metrics, but really like they've lost a ton of money. So it remains to be seen whether they're going to invest a lot more money in this, in this category going forward. But overall, I think the banks are here to stay. Like, it's not like fintechs are going to make these banks obsolete. That's, that's not something I see happening. But I do think they will supplement and, and solve problems that aren't being solved by the big banks. And of course, we're also seeing all the partnerships evolve in the space. So there could be a symbiotic relationship too. Oh, for sure. Like every, originally people were like, oh, we're, we're replacing the banks. We're going up against the banks and replacing them. And then now it's much more of a symbiotic relationship where they are all partnering with banks and, you know, leaving aside crypto, which is something. I'm wondering, Sheila, when should a bank build and when should they buy? This is something I ask bank executives, something I ask founders, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts as well. Yeah, I don't have like a very smart answer on this. I think like, you know, they should definitely buy from my portfolio. Um, but but I, I think if there's something inherent in your customer base that you can uniquely solve that can't be solved externally, I think it makes sense to if there's a product off the shelf that you can use with some customization and make it useful for your for your customer set, that's great. I think, you know, banks do have difficulty in attracting the most talented technologists and maybe that changes now, right? Like there are tens of thousands of recently laid off people from big tech that may like there are a bunch of engineers out there that maybe looking for more stability and may want to go to a large bank. So we'll see. Yeah, that's usually been my counter argument. What I usually hear is we don't have the people and it's like chicken and the egg. Like, well, they won't come if all you're asking them to do is integration with fintechs. If you're not building that's anything in-house, why should they come to you? It's true. But okay, we're almost done with the moderator session and I haven't asked you one important question and that is about open source. So, you know, you are investing in proprietary, well, helping companies build proprietary software, but there's also space for open source software. It's not as, I guess, popular within the financial services, but it yeah. is gaining some steam. The Linux Foundation does have a specific uh, foundation that just focuses on financial services. It's called FinOS, FinTech Open Source. And thus far, they've just been focused on the investment banking side of the house in terms of creating open source solutions, having actually developers maintain and others contribute, et cetera. What is your view on the VC enabling open source software within financial services? I think it's great. I think it's, it's 
you know, different banks have been very different, have had very re- different reception reception to it. And I think they were slow on the open source bandwagon, but I think now people see the benefits. So I, I, I'm in favor. I would say like, it's not a category we really invest in because most of the solutions are not fintech specific solutions. There are more broader applications that have a fintech application. Got it. Okay. Maybe we can convince you to invest in them in the future. Yeah. Um, it's, 540 and this is usually the end of our moderate session so now the audience we would like to welcome you on stage you have three ways again you can raise your hand there's an icon on bottom right it's like a hand if you click on that Monisha and I we are moderators and we can invite you on stage if you are in an area that's loud you can either message me one-on-one or Manisha or you can put it in the group chat and we'll read your question and because you're on stage and we're recording Please first state your name, where you're dialing in from, and then you can ask your question. So Isaac, welcome. Hey, uh, thanks for pulling me up. Shiro, thanks for, for your time. Huge fan of everything that you've done in follow you. So I'm going to ask you a question around angel investing, right? Because you know, as, as you'd imagine, most of the conversation was around like VC and like your operator role. But personally, I'm an angel investor. and. If would would say I'm, I'm late to the game because I started just about three years ago. Give us like yeah, quick you know, bullet points to like why you think angel investing is important, why people should be doing it, and like one key advice for everyone here who's a current angel or looking to be an angel investor. First of all, I don't think everyone should do it. I think it's like I think you should do it for a reason. For me, I mentioned it was like. I was getting my feet wet in San Francisco, meeting people, being inspired to maybe start my own thing based on some, some, some of the stuff I saw or maybe join a company. And then I was thinking, you know, maybe it could lead into being a professional investor. So for me, those are the reasons. Make sure you have your reasons. And if, it's, if your reason is financial, that's probably not a good one because, you know, most angel investors don't make money. And if you do want to make money, my advice is don't just invest in like one or two companies a year. You should probably invest in like five plus companies a year because your odds of success, even in the best founders is not that high. So I would say like my, my number one piece of advice is invest in more companies. And then I would say like, you know, figure out why you're investing and make sure you know, the types of investments you're doing are fitting that need. That's super helpful. Thanks. Seishu, welcome. There you go. Thanks, Shil, and thanks, Ambika and Monisha, for organizing it. But I work at a, you know, fifth largest bank. So a quick question on, on, on that, on the partnerships that the banks can have with the fintechs or most specifically fintechs with in your portfolio. How do you kind of see the relationships that we, we could be a service provider to the, some of the fintechs, we could be a customer of some of your fintechs as an investor or any other kind of modes that you look, see? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. I think like, you know, the, the easiest is a, a customer. Another aspect could be a partner. You could be a cha- channel partner or we could be a channel partner for some of the stuff you're doing. At some point, there could be an acquisition. It, there have not been that many. And, and part of that is sort of structurally how banks are set up and return on equity stuff. They don't tend to make large acquisitions. 
but I think I think all of those are reasonable, and I think all, all of those are things that that we we'd like in terms of you know your bank, the fifth largest bank I would assume is U.S. Bank. I think in that you know a bank of that size generally only works with 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 fintech companies on the payment side. You know, on the banking infrastructure side, because of the Durban Amendment, neobanks tend to work with smaller banks, banks less than $10 billion that don't trigger the Durban Amendment. And for those of you in the audience who don't know, when you swipe a debit card, you the amount that you pay, or the amount that the merchant pays to accept that card is regulated. And Dick Durbin, senator from, from Illinois, set up this amendment now 12 years ago, and it was in response to the financial crisis. And banks greater than $10 billion have debit interchange restricted to a very small amount, 0.05% plus 20 cents. And, and banks under that limit aren't subject to that limit. So all of the neobanks that you've heard of, Albert, Chime, Bridget, Digit, all, all these companies are working with partner banks that are smaller than that $10 billion asset limit. Got it. Thank, thanks. Way to guess the fifth largest bank, Shiel. <laughs> the one it's my business. Yeah, the one you didn't list earlier. Getting a lot of messages. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Channel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's clearly a very important bank. Yes, a very important one. James, you're next. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is James Sontag. I work for FinTech. So, Shield, we've talked about like successful FinTechs and everything, but what are some of the red flags that you've seen in FinTechs that say these guys are heading in a non-recoverable kind of state? Yeah, I think that, that, you know, it's for me, again, like I'm an early investor. It's all about the team. It's like, have I lost faith in the founder? Are they, that's, that's the number one thing that I, I see as, when I've when I've given up on a company, on in terms of red flags, there's a bunch of things that come up. One of them is like, I've had founders lie. I've had founders. There's a lot of like emphasis on bullshit metrics that like don't actually move the needle for the business. I want to think about like what are the three or four things that are really going to move the needle for the company. And if you're telling me about something that isn't one of those few things, it's some ancillary thing, and that's what you're really excited about. That's probably a red flag for me. Thank you. So like a focus on like, we won all these awards. Like we've grown the team so much. Yeah, like, okay, those awards are meaningless. T tell me about your revenue. Growing the team is great, but like, what is the quality of that team? And, and rapid growth often means you didn't maintain great quality. And I think, of course, quality is the most important thing. And so if you go into that, that direction, so if you had invested in one of these companies and then you found out that, you know, they dared, they were using some bullshit metrics that maybe you hadn't caught on, on but how, do you have a way to like an exit policy on how to get out of that or how does that part work? So once, once you're invested in a company, it's really hard to exit. We have done some and where we have sold our stake to a later stage investor but generally speaking, you're in it for the long, long haul. And so there's really no, no way out. So you're given everything you can to, to make it succeed. That's right. 
Great. Thank so you. So if I can just add on to that, do you think that creates a moral hazard? You just said that it's very difficult to get out. And I, when I used to work for, for startups as well, I felt the same way. Companies as big as KKRs, they're like, you know, pouring in millions of dollars and they're not really managing the day to day. But we go, we had a very intense growth period very quickly. And then when the economy goes south, instead of like, what are you going to do? Even though you have a high burn rate. So, of course, they're going to keep pouring more money because they don't want to. They, they want to have some kind of an exit on this investment. So does that create a moral hazard by not having an exit strategy? You know, like it's a little bit different. Like the, the, the kind of the business that they're in is very different where they can continue to pour money in. In our case, we are an early stage investor. We, all, we do follow on into our companies, but we don't lead rounds at, at the later stages. So there's like at some point, if the company isn't performing, they're not going to raise more money. And then the company probably dies. And we can, you know, I could do things, I could put my reputation on the line to make sure that the company raises the next round. But if I don't believe in the company, I'm not going to do that because it's my reputation. Got it. Thank you. James, did you have a follow-up or you're good? That was great. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. Anand, over to you. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Hi, Sheila, nice to meet you. Likewise. Quick question. Now that we are entering like a slightly higher rate of environment. At least <laughs> slightly. <laughs> slightly. I wish it was slightly. <laughs> yeah. So how do you see some of these? And does it change your investment philosophy markedly? Or does it, you know, do you just wait for the rates to come down? And a follow on question is, you know, recently public companies, companies that have gone public in the fintech space, a lot of them have not done well and the stocks are very low in terms yeah. of price, right? So does that change your view in terms of investments, uh, you know, when you look at, when you look at the next three to five years? Yeah. Okay. So I think there's, there's a couple things. So one is what does the interest rate environment do? There, there's a couple yeah. things. One is like, what are the direct impacts of a higher interest rate? In the lending businesses, it's tough. In some other businesses we're in, it's great, right? Like we have neobanks that are sitting on billions of dollars of deposits. So overnight, they tripled or even quadrupled their revenue. So that was amazing for us. But at a macro perspective, high interest rates are very bad for the kinds of companies we invest in because right. we invest in growth companies. And so a dollar at a zero interest rate, a dollar of profit 10 years from now is equivalent to a dollar of profit today. Correct. And, and if you're investing in growth, that's amazing. That's why all of our companies were doing phenomenally in 2021, 0% interest rate. And as you, you know, with every, every few basis points, that equation changes drastically. Yep. And so the, the equation from changes from being all focused on growth, make money in the future, to companies that can make money today. And there are different kinds of companies. Like there are some companies for which you need to build a massive network effect and hope that at some point in the future, you get big enough that you can make, be profitable. And those there are a lot of those companies that had raised money over the last couple of years, including in our portfolio. But some of those companies are really gonna struggle in this environment. So I think, you know, there's of course the micro piece of what interest rate 
interest rates do to in, an individual company, which is bad for lending company, great for a company that takes deposits. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the macro piece is, is probably the, the bigger, the more interesting mm-hmm. thing. And then in terms of in terms of the fintech companies that are public, it's been a bloodbath. Like I, I think we're probably down eighty percent in the past yeah. year in these companies, and you know the majority of them, many of them will never recover. And you know we we have companies down ninety plus percent. You know off the top of my head, Dave. Redfin, Open Door, Root, Metro Mile, Hippo, all these companies are down like 95%. And I think a lot of those will never recover. I think some of them will have to go private. Some of them will just fold and somebody will take on the customers. So it's it's been tough. And and the companies that are doing well, I think my my co-founder's business, NerdWallet, has done reasonably well in this market. I, I think because customer acquisition has gotten so difficult, you know, with with the Apple changes, et cetera, it's just gotten more difficult to acquire customers on Google or Facebook. But NerdWallet has a sort of a different angle on customer acquisition. And that's why they've done relatively well and that their stock is actually up in the past year, one of the only one of the few that is. Thank you. Anand and I, we both used to work at SoFi, so we're hoping SoFi recovers, Shiel. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so too, because of, I mean, I'm not an investor, but for, for the broader market, SoFi, I mean, they're not doing as badly as many of the other companies. So, you know, they're down, what, 50, 60, 70%, something in that range, but, but it could be a lot worse. Thanks. Okay, so we have a question in the chat from Rowan, and I believe she works at Visa. She says, what are you most excited about in the fintech space during the coming month? You know, I, I think I'm just excited to see how this plays out for some of our companies. The nice thing about last year is we have a, many of our top companies, even if they're missing numbers or, or aren't achieving what we thought they were, were going to at the beginning of the year, they are, they do have plenty of capital. So in some of these companies, we are now building new business lines that I think can be very successful. So I'm just like excited to see how that all plays out. As, in terms of fintech as a whole, I would say there's not anything that like in particular that I'm crazy excited about. We continue to invest and we've done, we've done a couple of deals internationally this year that, that I'm excited about. Nice. And then another question from Jennifer Miller. She's from the fifth largest bank. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> a lot of people from the fifth largest bank here. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's asking about the payment space, Visa, MasterCard, Amex. A lot of fintech companies are in that space. How concerned should they be of the fintech gaining traction? In other words, are they truly eating their lunch? You know, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, look. Visa and MasterCard have been phenomenal stocks to own over the past decade. And and I think they will continue to be. I don't think, I think like last year, there was some notion that, that, that BNPL was going to eat their lunch. I think those fears have totally rationalized to you know, being nothing. I think they have extremely strong businesses, Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. 
so I'm I'm not worried about those guys. I, I'm a shareholder in, in them. Wonderful. And the last question is from me. We didn't get to ask you this from the moderator session. Should have. And this is around seed invest seed, seed stage investments. You said that it's at that stage. It's more about investing in the team, the founders, yeah. the founder chemistry. How do you how what do you look for? Let's say Monisha and I, we have this hobby project. This is not even like, there's no legal structure to this. We just do this for fun. Like, are we good enough for investing? Like, how do you decide? <laughs> it's one of those things that's like really hard to tell or articulate. So it's like some sort of feeling you have. One of it, one of the things I, I talked about was articulation of the vision. So like, if you can convince me of your project and, and I can understand it easily, that's a that's a big thing. Like, I'd say twenty five percent of companies that I meet with, like in the first five minutes, I don't even know what the company does. And like, this is my business. Like, fintech, fintech is all I do. So, like, if you can't convince, if you can't explain to me what the business is in five minutes, then probably it's on you. Like, you know, I. I probably have seen similar businesses and like I should be able to understand it. So I think that that's one thing, clear articulation. There's also some element of like founder market fit. Like, is this something, is this related to something you've done in the past? I think that's really important. In fintech in particular, it's hard to be a like, you know, just a young technologist with no background in, in fintech because, or finance because the like, there's so much, so many difficult things, partnerships, regulation, et cetera, that like the move fast, break things doesn't really work. So I think some level of experience in, in, in finance or fintech is useful too. Nice. And so with that gut instinct can also creep in biases. So how, what is that process? How do you, I guess, check yourself that, you know, you are, there are no biases creeping in and you're truly being objective? They're always biases and like, we're all biased by the types of companies we've been involved in in the past. You know, it's something where like Jake and I ne have never invested in anything. that's like even close to anything we've run in before, because we know where all the skeletons are buried. We think it's too hard to do what we did. So it has been like, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a challenge for us to, to think about investing in those categories, which for me, like I had a payments company, so I haven't done much investing in payments. Just we know where the bodies are buried. Sorry, what I, I lost my train of thought for a second. Somebody somebody came. I was just door. asking you, like, how do you remain objective? Um, oh yeah, because at that yeah. it's all about people. It's all about people. So yeah, you do need to to apply sort of. There's always some sort of filter you come with, which is like based on your past, and you can always you can always make shortcuts, and you can say. Oh, like this person went to Stanford and worked at Stripe, therefore I should invest. I think like we try to eliminate as much of that from the discussion we have as possible. Like when we as a group talk about a company, that's not what we talk about. But really it's like it's about how somebody made you feel. Like, do you believe in them and do you want to work with them? Those are the most important things. Great. Thank you. Munisha, any other questions we have from the back channel that we may have missed? I think we covered and we're out of time too. Wonderful. But, well, sh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say thank you. I mean, this is fantastic. I know we're going to be listening to this. This 
is going to be available on the various podcasts. So tune in if you want to catch what Sheil said. Thank you so much again, Sheil, for joining and being so gracious about it and appreciate the inclusivity. I mean, at least for me, speaking for myself, VC seemed like it was a very far away and you brought it a little closer today. So thank you for that. Thank you guys. It was wonderful being on. You guys are a wonderful host. And have a, thank, have a great night. Thank you, you Sheil. So next week, we have two shows. We generally only do shows on Wednesdays at 5 o'clock. But next week, we have two shows. One will be on Tuesday, 5 o'clock Pacific. We will have the team from the White House joining. This is specific to a program. It's called the White House Fellows Program. So we'll have former fellows who served as White House fellows for various cabinet members. And then we'll also have the, the team that puts together that program and selects the candidates. So we'll, the next week's program is all about the White House Fellows Program. It's not about politics at all. And then on Wednesday, we'll have Finos, FinTech Open Source, the executive director, talk about open source within the financial services. So two very special episodes next week, one Tuesday, one Wednesday, both at 5 p.m. We hope you join for those shows as well. And with that, I bid you adieu. Thank you for joining us today. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you like the discussion, we welcome you to join us during our live shows every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Clubhouse. We'd be delighted to have you there. You can also find other episodes on all major podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Apple, Google, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate if you could leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next week, be safe. Thank you.